The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American politics, life and culture. My name is Freddie Gray. I'm the deputy editor of The Spectator. I'm joined today by John Daniel Davidson, who is a senior editor at The Federalist. And we're going to be talking about the first anniversary of January 6th and the famous storming of the Capitol, which occurred in the run-up to the transition of power between President Donald Trump and President Joe Biden. Uh, John, it's been uh, a year exactly today since that very dramatic news day, very dramatic day in Washington. And I thought I'd start by asking you a slightly opaque question, which is, has your feeling about what happened changed much? Or has your perception of what happened changed much since, let's say, January 7th to today? It has. Quite a bit. And it has because of all that has happened since January 6th of last year. There was an opportunity after January 6th to take stock of the way that we tolerated political violence for months and months leading up to the Capitol riot and the danger that that posed to civil society, to our constitutional republic, and to change course. And we did the opposite. And by by we, I mean, for the most part, Democrats, Democratic leadership, and corporate media decided to use January 6th as a cudgel and hammer away at all Republicans, at all conservatives, and smear them all as uh, essentially capital rioters and conflate, you know, they, they would go on, as we saw last, this last weekend, the New York Times did, conflate rather mundane efforts by Republican lawmakers at the state level to pass like election reforms, conflate that with insurrectionists and to, to label vast swaths of their countrymen as insurrectionists. So that has changed my view of January 6th. On January 7th of 2021, I was, like most Americans, disturbed at what had happened. But I saw it as a culmination of months of political violence all across our country. Hundreds of horrible riots. These were the Black Lives Matter riots that raged through our cities. And I saw January 6th as a kind of a reaping of what we had sowed. Because if you allow political violence to fester in in a democracy, it begets more political violence. And eventually you know, the other side uses it too. And so I thought we, we might have a reckoning about that, but instead Democrats in the media have decided to use it as a weapon. And that's, that's very disturbing. Yes, I suppose what, what you're saying there is that there, were, there was a certain hope in the days afterwards that this terrible moment could be a kind of learning experience for America and uh, America's faith in democracy could possibly be restored because it certainly appeared to break down in 2020. I mean, before the election, you had both sides saying that the other side would cheat, would claim victory if if they didn't win. And indeed, that obviously did happen. Uh, Donald Trump did 
claimed victory and there was a collapse in faith in the legitimacy of elections. That right. hasn't actually been restored, has it? No, it hasn't. And, you know, we wrote about this in the run up to the 2020 election, how, you know, these various uh, Democratic and progressive groups were sort of running these war games about, you know, what they would do and how they would organize in the event of a Trump victory. The Election Integrity Project, wasn't it called? Was that the... That's right. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. Uh, that was one among others. And uh, yeah, there was a crisis in sort of our, our democratic process prior to the election. And so, you know, and sure enough, uh, when the election came, it was messy. It was chaotic. We had not had an election like that in living memory where the results weren't in. Days kind of rolled by. Uh, there was all kinds of irregularities coming out of the, the changes to election law because of the pandemic. It was a real problem, and, and it still is a real problem that, that we need to address. But the fundamental problem, as you mentioned, was, was this lack of faith in our institutions and a kind of corresponding lack of legitimacy. And the January 6th riot uh, grew out of all of that. And, you know, I, I do think that people on the right could have been a calming voice and could have played things down uh, and helped to smooth things out, did not do that. But as I said, the seeds for January 6th were sown months and months ahead of time when Democrats and the media actively cheered on and encouraged mass rioting, looting and violence all across the country. And as I said, political violence of that sort begets political violence. I mean, there's always been a lot of conspiracy theorizing in America, and I, we can get onto the theorizing on the on the political right about January 6th in a second. But let's first of all talk about what I, you've written about, which is essentially a conspiracy theory on the left that tries to sort of bring together the Republican Party with this uh, in, attempted insurrection, as they call it, uh, or coup, um, and that it was really that the Republican Party is sort of hell bent on destroying American democracy. And that's sort of accepted not just by cranks or people who are generally deemed to be cranks, but by people who have major cable network TV shows and things like that. And the president and the vice president. <laughs> and the president of the United States, yeah. Yeah, Vice President Kamala Harris you know, has said this, that you know, the greatest threat to our democracy are these state-level attempts to reform election laws, right? You know, that's a number one threat to our democracy, which is a crazy thing to say when you actually look at what these laws uh, do and, and sort of how, how they're supposed to work. And especially when you compare some of the sort of Republican uh, state election reforms to the Democratic state election reforms. It's a nonsense statement in addition to being sort of, you know, a, a kind of, as you say, conspiracy theory. But yes, there is an active attempt to conflate all these things and to paint all Republicans uh, and especially Republicans that think that there were some irregularities in the 2020 election that need to be addressed. Not just irregularities, but just sloppiness, right? Just just plain sloppiness, like judges throwing out rules for verifying absentee ballots. Really, these are kind of like nuts and bolts, otherwise rather boring aspects of election laws and regulations that Democrats have decided that they were going to use to smear Republicans who want to do something about this as insurrectionists. And I think that kind of tells the lie about their whole view of January 6th and their whole view of political violence in general. They don't really have a problem with it. They support it when they're 
when the violence is ideologically aligned with their agenda, then they'll, they'll use it to smear their political opponents and efforts, perfectly legal uh, efforts, to change laws that they oppose, uh, rather than trying to win elections and pass their agenda in a legal and regular way. So that's what's happening right now. Everyone in the Democratic Party, from the president and vice president all the way on down, uh, has decided that January 6th is an opportunity to smear their political opponents as insurrectionists uh, and, and traitors, essentially, and to use that kind of line to block their opponent's agenda. Well, let's, and now let's look at the, the sort of conspiracy theorizing on the right, because there, I suppose there are two big conspiracy theories on the right. One is that the election was rigged in various ways. There are various different theories as to what happened. And the other would relate to January 6th, and that's that the insurrection, the, the mob activity, was sort of directed by possibly by FBI uh, deep state operatives, if you like. I think a lot of this sounds pretty crazy. However, you know, th- there are people on the right who say, you know, th- there are questions to be asked about the way that the election happened. There were huge changes yeah. Uh, yeah. In, in that election because of COVID, no doubt. But that, uh, you know, that's why the Republican Party are keen to push electoral reform. How much of this stuff do you think is crazy? And how much do you think the right has some legitimate concerns. Let's start with the election and then talk about the mob on January 6th. Most of it is crazy. Yeah. Most of it is crazy. You can go ahead and put me in that camp and maybe that'll put me out of favor with some people on the right. And that's okay. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Most of the conspiracy theories about the election and about January 6th, I think are just that. They are complicated and convoluted, uh, you know, answers to something that is much more simple, I think. As for the election, you know, the election wasn't stolen on uh, election day or in the days afterwards when there was some confusion and some irregularities about counting absentee ballots in these various places. If the election was stolen, let's say in, in, in air quotes, it was stolen months and months before election day when democratic uh, organizations state-level Democratic Party apparatuses, activist groups, all brought a sort of deluge of lawsuits challenging ordinary election rules in the name of COVID. COVID was the pretext for loosening these rules. So why did they want to loosen these rules? Uh, They wanted to make it easier to uh, do absentee voting, to do things like ballot harvesting, to receive absentee ballots without, you know, after the deadline. And why did they want to do that? Because Democrats are far more likely to use absentee ballots than Republicans. Generally, Republicans don't trust mail-in balloting and they don't do it. They, they show up to polling places in person. So this was just a, a way to, to boost Democratic votes. And they went about it in a rather systematic way. And judges caved to this. In some cases, Republican office holders caved to these demands and settled these court cases before the election. In some cases, it was public health officials that just changed the rules by emergency fiat power. And not enough was done, not enough attention, for one thing, was, was drawn to this as it was playing out over the, over the course of the summer and the fall. And not enough was done by Republican leaders to stop it. And so those are real things. And again, a lot of it is like real nitty gritty and in the weeds and kind of boring and mundane because it has to do with, you know, these really sort of... Um, arcane procedures for how you process ballots and how absentee ballots are mailed out and identities are verified and all this other stuff. 
but they really do make a difference. And, and we, you know, we also saw other things like Mark Zuckerberg giving through a nonprofit, giving millions of dollars to Democratic areas to boost voter turnout by giving grants to what should have been nonpartisan election offices and essentially turning them into get-out-the-vote operations for Democrats. So this was all happening before the election, and that's the scandal. Uh, that's it, how the election was rigged, if you want to call it that. And it was kind of done in a way out in the open. And in fact, uh, afterwards, Democrats and, and uh, Democrat-friendly media bragged about it. Yes. And well, I, you know, but neither of us wants to sound like a crazy person. I think there are... You know, there are concerns about mail-in voting in, in countries all over the world. It's generally recognised that mail-in voting is more open to corruption. Uh, there are countries like France that don't allow it because uh, you could see you can it's you don't have to be a, an expert on these things to see why turn up in person voting and voter identification is, is a better can be a better way of ensuring a fair election. Absolutely. I mean, I- it, it should be uncontroversial. If we're going to require ID verification for, you know, these vaccine passports, for example, then you should have to require an ID to vote. You need to know who is voting and you need to, to uh, as a voter, you have a certain level of responsibility to make sure that, you know, you have ID uh, that is that will allow you to vote. These shouldn't be partisan things. Uh, they are partisan in the United States, though, because uh, the Democrats like less secure voting systems. And that's that's what their opposition to these things is all about. The fact that this ha- this all happened, though, is different than what the conspiracy theorists say, which is that, you know, that the voting machines uh, were hacked and the votes were changed and that Trump really got more votes and he should have won and votes for Trump were destroyed and all, all of the, you know, down the rabbit hole you go. And that is a kind of a dangerous way of thinking about all of this. And it's, it's poisonous and there's nothing that can be done about it. Right. And, and it's a great shame that people like Rudy Giuliani kind of engaged in and with this and toyed with it in public because I think it it buried the real story, which you know we covered at the time, and which my colleague Molly Hemingway wrote a book about, which was the way that the election was manipulated in the months leading up to November 2020, mm. um, when something could have been done about it, but wasn't. Well, and then if we flip it back to the left, Democrats for for decades now have been protesting about uh, voter suppression. And Democrats have been saying for a long time that there is uh, that elections that they lose are illegitimate. I mean, and this points again to this crisis in American democracy, which is getting worse as now both sides will not accept election results if they don't go their way. Certainly Hillary Clinton didn't accept that she lost the 2016 presidential election. Yes. And she's she's repeatedly come out and said, you know, said that, you know, immediately afterwards and years afterwards that Donald Trump was an illegitimate president. She also Democ- she also told Joe Biden when he was the nominee not to accept the result if he lost. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and you know, House Speaker Nancy Pelosi never accepted that Trump was the legitimate president, which was the motivation behind these crazy impeachment trials that that were held when he was in office and after the election as well. You know, so it's not like the Democrats have a stellar record for accepting the results of an election, you know, mm. uh, and this goes back years and years uh, to to previous presidential elections where Democrats have, have uh, you know, uh, called into question and denied the legitimacy of the Republican president-elect. 
So yes, we have a problem. Democrats aren't making it uh, are, are making it much worse, and they have made it much worse with, as I said earlier, with how they responded to January sixth. To them, this wasn't sort of a cautionary tale or a sort of check on our indulgence of political violence. This was um, to them an opportunity to use political violence the way they've always used it, which is to uh, which is for partisan gain. And, and that's what we're seeing. You know, we talk about the election and the conspiracy theories around that. Their conspiracy about January 6th is that it was this thing that was directed by Trump and that all these Republican lawmakers were on board. This is why the January 6th committee wants to subpoena their own congressional colleagues because they believe, they either believe they were involved or they believe it serves their political agenda to pretend and act as though these Republican congressmen were involved in, in planning a, a, an attack on the Capitol. Yes, let's talk about that January 6th commission, because as we were suggesting at the beginning, this could have been a, a moment of reckoning for America. And presumably the January 6th commission was set up with that purpose. But actually, it seems to have turned into another very partisan, divisive body. Exactly. And of course, you could have predicted that it would have been with Nancy Pelosi uh, kind of calling the shots there. Um, the moment that she basically uh, rejected House Minority Leader Kevin McCarthy's names that he put forward for the Republicans that he that he wanted to have on what would have then been a bipartisan uh, committee, that was the moment the whole thing sort of uh, collapsed into into partisan political theater. The idea that Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger are representing the Republican perspective on this committee is a is a joke. I don't even think Cheney and Kinzinger believe it. Mm. They can't hardly be called Republicans. They almost, you know, Kinzinger is not running for office. Cheney almost certainly will lose in a reelection bid if, if they aren't both sort of booted from the party before then. So it's not a bipartisan committee. It is a partisan committee entirely, and its behavior uh, has been. Um, has been partisan and has been theatrical. They are trying to drag this out because they have to keep it going. Uh, they have to keep talking about Trump. They have to keep talking about January 6th. They, they desperately need it to be part of the ongoing uh, news cycles and national conversation because they're facing an absolute shellacking in November at the midterms. And I think they foolishly think that that uh, this will somehow help the, help avoid an electoral disaster in the midterms, um, but it won't. Can, can you give a sense? Because uh, quite a, most of our listeners are in Britain, and uh, they might not be aware of just the, the sort of extent of wall to wall media coverage there's going to be, and the sort of the flavour of it. Oh, it will all be of the same flavor and character, at least among the, the corporate press. The remembrances of January 6th will be hysterical and hyperbolic. They will be like a, a 9-11 remembrances or, uh, you know, D-Day or something. It will be painted as the worst thing that's happened, you know, in America since Pearl Harbor. But it will be notable, not for that, which is very predictable, it will be notable for how incongruous and disconnected it is from the concerns of ordinary Americans. People out in America are not thinking about January 6th. They are not thinking about the January 6th Select Committee or its work. They are thinking about kitchen table issues. They're thinking about inflation, about the price of groceries. 
They're thinking about the coming winter and gas bills. They're thinking about their schools and whether or not the schools are going to be open. They're thinking about, to the extent that they're thinking about politics at all, they're thinking about all the ways that the Democrats and the Biden administration has turned every challenge into a crisis and every crisis into a catastrophe and has demonstrated incompetence in every area of governance over the past year. That's what they're thinking about. That is not what the Washington press corps and Democrats and uh, the news organizations in New York and Washington, D.C. are going to talk about, which reinforces this massive divide in our public discourse between what our elites think about and talk about and think is important and what the rest of the country thinks about and talks about. Well, I suppose what they can, what they can do and what they will try and do is uh, hold up this this bogeyman image, not just of Trump, but of the movement around Trump as the divisive force in America. And they have a point there to a certain extent that uh, the Trump movement was divisive. You know, you can you can say that it, it was divisive for, for understandable reasons, but it, it was divisive. It was divisive, but I think we forget after four years of Trump that Trump was not a, a cause, he was an effect. Uh, Trump was not the originating force uh, behind all that, that has happened over the past four or five years. Uh, the, the divisiveness, if you will, had been brewing for a long time. Trump tapped into it in a way, in a, a fairly ingenious way, sort of by sort of leaning into it and saying the thing that uh, no one would say, but everybody thought dispatching his GOP primary opponents in that way but the divisions and the divides between elite America and uh, the rest of America have been festering for years and years. And you can, you know, we don't probably don't have time here to go into that, but you can trace it back decades and decades. And it expressed itself in the election of Trump. But our media and political elites make a mistake, I think, when they try to tie all that has happened over the past four or five years to Trump himself, because it's not about Trump. It is about a disintegrating political culture and the collapse of our institutions and the incompetence and corruption of our elite class. That's what it's about. And until those things are addressed and even acknowledged, then it's not much good to talk about Trump because it's not about Trump. Mm. Well, I mean, I think that I suppose there has to be a certain amount of humble pieing on the but by non-democrat commentators. I know myself. Certainly, I wrote a piece the days after the election saying um, the, the MAGA crowd doesn't riot or something was the was the headline. And then, of course, that was thrown back at me on, on Twitter quite a lot after January 6th. But I, I, I mean, with the exception of January 6th, I stand by it because I went, I went to quite a few Trump rallies and I never had this sort of impression of a, of a violent, seething movement like I had seen at, at Black Lives Matter protests. But I wonder whether you think that, let's not get to the conspiracy theorising, but the, that it's been blown into something that was much more violent in the minds of the Democratic press corps, say, or the, or, or the corporate media, than it actually was. I think that's true. They need it to be as violent as, as it possibly can be in sort of our public memory. Uh, that is not to excuse what happened at all. I, I'm of the view that you know, if you cross a police barrier, you should expect a crack on the head mm. and, you know, political violence should not be tolerated and should be met with overwhelming police force. Mm. But when it's not, when it's not, you are instructing the public 
and you are instructing them that it's okay to engage in political violence and that political violence is something that can be tolerated and can be useful. And that's the lesson I think that uh, a lot of these people took from the summer of rioting, of Black Lives Matter riots that we all witnessed uh, and many people lived through personally, seeing their neighborhoods uh, attacked and their towns and cities ransacked. And so I think it, it took a certain segment of MAGA world that felt betrayed and cheated in the election. And they concluded, well, if those people can riot, and so can we. And we should have seen that coming. Yes. I, I agree with you that, that generally speaking, I've been to dozens of Trump rallies and, and uh, generally speaking, Trump supporters are not the sort that, that riot. And a, a Trump rally is actually a sort of joyful, it's like a sporting event. You know, um, it, it's not the kind of place where people would, would generally get violent. But I do think going back to my earlier comment of political violence begetting political violence, the reason it begets more violence is because it instructs the people that it can be tolerated. And people who are angry will lash out and do what they think they can get away with. And in this case, it was, let's push past these police and get into the building. Well, finally, I'd like to ask you, I mean, so one of the key questions in relation to Trump, which is how much he's he was responsible for the unpleasant scenes of January the 6th. I mean, I think one could probably say he he was he's responsible for not accepting electoral defeat. He is responsible, might you say, for for talking about fighting. There was a lot of fighting talk. We we, we have to fight to win. Kimberly Guilfoyle, I think, um, was seen sort of shouting "fight, fight, fight" on on that day on January sixth. But I mean, do you think he was guilty of should he have been impeached for um, incitement to the violence? Absolutely not. I think it's crazy to to suggest so. Talking about you know fighting fighting for the election or you know we got to fight for our cause is normal political rhetoric. It's been around for a long time. Both sides use it. It's well documented. There's nothing, absolutely nothing, remarkable about you know uh, speaking that way when it comes about politics. Trump spoke at the White House ellipse earlier that day to a very large crowd of people. And then encouraged them to make their way peacefully down to the U.S. Capitol and make their voices heard. The idea was to was to protest. And you can disagree with Trump, and I, and I do, about the election results. By the time January 6th came around, it was time to concede and time for the country to move on as best it could. So Trump was at fault for you know fomenting this idea that he had really won the election. But... He, it's, I think it's crazy to say that he incited a riot. There were tens of thousands of people on the U.S. Capitol grounds that day. Uh, tens of thousands. The vast majority of them had no idea that anything was even happening at the Capitol. It's a, it's a big area. It's like 16 acres. Mm. There were many people there, and I've talked to many of them, who were there to uh, have uh, rallies and have speakers and engage in peaceful protests. They got permits from the Capitol Police to have these uh, different events around the Capitol. The vast majority of the people that went to the Capitol that day and that heard Trump speak earlier at the White House ellipse and then walked down to the Capitol were there to peacefully make their voices heard. A lot of them felt like the, there was too many irregularities in the election. They felt like it wasn't a fair election. They wanted Congress to investigate. You know, some of them just wanted like a committee to investigate the irregularities in the election. There was all, all sorts of different opinions. And the people who did decide to breach the Capitol and fight with police 
had decided to do that and had had started making their plans, you know, while Trump was speaking to the main body of, of protesters at, uh, at the White House ellipse. So the idea that Trump incited this, uh, I think, is uh, completely incorrect. You can say that Trump should have been more conciliatory, that he should have been more prudent in accepting the results of the election. But to try to make the leap and say that he incited a riot, that's what the Democrats and the corporate media are trying to do and have tried to do for a year. And that's what they're going to try to do with their January 6th anniversary coverage. And probably they'll never stop trying to do that, (laughs) even though I think the facts all mitigate against it completely. Well, I I did say finally on the last question, but this really is finally. Uh, I mean, uh, next year, do you think there will be a similar sort of attempt to make this a memorialized day? Do you think this is going to go down in American history as a sort of a day that of somber reflection for for years and decades to come? I don't think for for years and decades to come, no, because I think ordinary Americans understand the, the difference between reality and propaganda. But I do think that as long as it is politically useful for Democrats and their allies in the media to memorialize January 6th as the worst day in American history, then they will keep talking about it and lying about it and exaggerating it and trying to distort our public memory of it as best they can. And unfortunately, the lesson, the true lesson of January 6th won't ever be learned, I think, because of that, because it will continue to just be a tool of partisan propaganda. I don't think that it will persist that way for decades, because I don't think that this was a Pearl Harbor or a 9-11. But I think in the near term, we can expect more of the kind of propagandizing that, that we're seeing today. John, uh, thank you very much for coming on. I I hope we'll get you on again. I would love that. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much for listening to that episode of Americano. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe. And if you really enjoyed it, please leave us a star rating, preferably five stars, and a review.